Well, good morning. So here, here we are at the. Uh, well, now I'm on. I can. <laughs> the uh, we are the last Sunday in July. Do you believe that? The last Sunday in July. This summer has flown by. This year has flown by. Uh, probably feels like a sprint this year because we were in a slow jog through 2020. Uh, so this year feels feels like it is moving incredibly fast, but we're excited about what we have coming up coming uh, in, the, in the coming weeks. Uh, just a few weeks, uh, August 15th, we're having our We're Back Sunday, so we're going to be back in Sunday school. We're going to be back here all together. We're going to have a, a dinner out there, uh, which you, you need to sign up for, by the way, if you want some food. And so, uh, so we're excited about that. We hope you guys are excited about that as well. Uh, Muhammad Ali, at one time in uh, his life, was the most recognizable person in the world. His fame was uh, just immense. And if you know anything about Muhammad Ali, you know that he was an entertaining guy. He was crazy talented as a boxer, but he was also just a funny, entertaining guy. He had all these one-liners and all, all this kind of stuff and uh, float like a butterfly, sting like a bee, all these kind of sayings, you know, that, that came uh, from him. But if you also, if you know much about him, you know, he wasn't the most humble man on, on the planet either. Uh, and one, uh, when, uh, one day he was on his way to an event and during the flight, he came upon, the, the aircraft came upon some foul weather, some turbulence, and so the captain came on and asked everyone to return to their seats, turn their seat belt, uh, put their seat belts on, and everybody complied with this except for Ali. And noticing this, the flight attendant went to him and asked if he could comply with the captain's orders. And Muhammad Ali said, Superman doesn't need a seat belt. The flight attendant didn't miss a beat and replied, Superman also doesn't need an airplane. <laughs> so we continue on today in our summer series, Things the Bible Does Not Say. And today we're looking at one of the most popular ones. This is one that has pretty much become a motto in American life today, and that is the saying, to thine own self be true. And where does this saying come from? Is it even a biblical concept? Well, since we named our series Things the Bible Does Not Say, I guess you can pretty well guess, no, this is not in the Bible. Where this comes from is Shakespeare, from Shakespeare's play Hamlet. And this is Polonius giving some fatherly advice to an 18-year-old son who's about to depart for Paris. And he's telling him, neither a lender or a borrower be. That's another thing that people think is in the Bible, but it's not. And in the next lines, he gives this fatherly advice. He says, to, he says this above all, to thine own self be true. And it must follow as the night, the day, thou canst not then be false to any man. To thine own self be true. Not in the Bible, but many have adopted this as a life verse. I mean, I've even seen this like tattooed on, on people's 
bodies, you know, to thine own self be true. We live in the age of the selfie. You know, we, we, we live in this age. And, and so this is a memory verse. And George, George Barna, or life verse, uh, George Barna does extensive research into moral and spiritual beliefs in America. And a couple years ago, he put out a survey, did a survey that said 72% of Americans believe there is no such thing as absolute truth. Two people could define truth in totally conflicting ways, but both could still be correct. Now, just let that kind of float around in your brain for a minute. That's, where, that's what truth has become in our day. He goes on that 71% of Americans believe there are no absolute standards that apply to everybody in all situations. 64% of Americans believe that Christians, Jews, Buddhists, Muslims, and all others pray to the same God, even though they use different names for that God. 64% of Americans believe all religions are equally good. And so this idea of to thine own self be true, taking care of number one, trusting yourself, knowing yourself, being true to yourself. Self has become the basic standard for truth. If I believe it's true, it's true. This idea says you have your truth, I have my truth. And so what we've done is we've placed our, ourselves as the arbiter of truth. We determine truth. But what does God's word have to say about this idea? This idea that has just permeated American culture. Well, quite frankly, it has a lot to say about this idea. Which made it really difficult for me in trying to figure out where I was going to go this, this week. Because there are so many passages that I could have preached this message from. And just to take like a quick lap around the Bible, I'm not going to do that kind of sermon. We're going to camp out in, in one scripture. But just to take a lap around the Bible, you see verses like, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Jeremiah 17, 9. See the verse that Jeff read just a minute ago. For by grace, by the grace given to, to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. You see, second Timothy 3, but understand this, in the last days there will come times of difficulty for people will be lovers of self. And then we see what Jesus said in Matthew 16 and, and Mark 8. Jesus told his disciples, if anyone comes after me, let him deny himself. Take up his cross and follow me. But where we're going to camp out this morning is in the book of James. And so if you have your Bible, go ahead and make your way to the book of James. It's towards the, the back of the, the Bible. 
James chapter 4 is where we're going to be. James is the brother of Jesus. And James is going to help us pull out some things that tend to, to draw our hearts. And he's going to give us the remedy for those. And so today, let's look at James chapter 4, starting in verse 1, going through verse 10. What causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, and so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, and so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. And you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is, a, it is to no purpose that the Scriptures says He yearns jealously over the Spirit that He has made to dwell in us. But He gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourself, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep, and let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and He will exalt you. And so we see here in, in James, he's giving us several things that are happening in our hearts, that our hearts are naturally drawn to selfish ambitions. We're drawn to jealousy and pride, which leads to spiritual adultery. And what James is telling us here is that these are things that have to be dealt with. In verses 1 through 5, it breaks down that this is what's going on in your heart. This is what needs to be dealt with. And then in 6 through 10, 10 we get the remedy to that. And as one commentator put it, that I read this week, one commentator put it this way in verses 1 through 5 is the pollution, and verses 6 through 10 is the solution. And so we're actually going to use that this morning. We're going to take that and build on that this morning. And so if you're taking notes, number one in your note is, in your notes are pride is the pollution. Pride is the pollution. And so James is asking the question, what causes us to fight? What disrupts relationships within us? And if we look at verse 2 again, we see that. You desire and you do not have. And so you murder, you covet, you cannot obtain, and so you fight and you quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. And I love the way I, I read the Message Bible a lot. 
I love the way the Message Bible puts this. It says, quarrels come about because you do not get your way. That's pretty straightforward, right? You have a desire, and that desire goes unmet, and so you get mad. Now, if you've ever been around small children, or if you have small children, or you've ever been around small children, you know how this goes, right? You, you know how this goes. So, so what's wrong? Well, he has that toy. Okay. But, but I want that toy. Well, he has that toy right now. But, but I want it. Okay, but he has it. But I want it. And in a two-year-old or a three-year-old, this usually winds up in a tantrum on the floor, whining and crying. And this usually happens in the supermarket. And this usually happens either in front of me or behind me in the checkout line. That's when this is usually going on. And so James is telling us this is, this is what we act like. We don't teach two-year-olds to be selfish, right? You never sit down and said with your two-year-old and said, Hey, you, you need to, whenever they have a toy, you need to go and take it away because it's, it's your toy and you want, you never, you don't teach that, right? That's just in us. That's, that's who we are at our core. And so James is saying this, you don't get what you want. And so you quarrel and you fight and you murder. Now, some commentators uh, say this word murder here that James uses is, is like when Jesus uses it at the Sermon on the Mount when he's saying, when he's using murder to say if you hate someone or if, you, if you're angry with someone, you've murdered them in your heart. And most likely that is the case. But we do need to realize that the physical act of murder often happens because of jealousy, quarrels, and pride. I mean, that's how far this can go. When you put selfish sinners together whose motto is to thine own self be true, conflicts are going to arise. These things arise out of a heart that says, I am my own authority. I'm being true to myself. The word of God has no sway in my life. The word of God has no meaning in my life. And so I reject that word. And James shows us what this leads to. In verse 4, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. You adulterous people. And the word adultery is, means it's being unfaithful to a spouse. And what James is saying here is that spiritual adultery is being unfaithful to God. James is adopting some of the, the language of the Old Testament where Israel is often related to a spouse. 
And we see that in Isaiah. We see it in Hosea and some other places. And so then he goes on to say what this leads to, that friendship with the world is enmity with God. James is saying, you act like the world when your greatest desire is self. When your greatest desire is self-satisfaction. You're comfortable in the world. And friendship with the world is enmity with God. Now what does this word enmity mean? It means to be directly opposed or hostile to. That's what friendship with the world means. Now, we have kind of a, a different view of friendship in, in our world today. You know, we have Facebook friends. You know, these are friends that we haven't seen in 20 years and don't know really anything about other than what we see on Facebook. We have friends from work. We have friends, you know, from uh, the ball team or the dance team our kids are on or what, whatever it is, we have friends. But in the first century, the word friend and friendship had a totally different meaning. It meant a close, deep, personal, intimate relationship. That's who you called a friend. And so when James uses that word here, it has a different meaning in the first century in his day than it does to us. And what James is saying is that you feel comfortable with the things of the world. You have a deep, close relationship with the things of the world, more so than with the things of God. This is to say you have more in common with those who are outside of the church than those who are inside the church. And so that's a good question to ask yourself this morning. Where do I feel at home? Where do I feel comfortable? Do I feel at home with the things of God or do I feel at home with the things of the world? This is a serious heart issue. If you call yourself a believer and you're here this morning and you would rather be anywhere else than here right now, that's a serious heart issue. And it's something you need to examine. If you're watching at, at home today and not because you have something that precludes you from, from being here, not because you have some issues that would keep you from, from being here, but just simply because it's easy. And you would rather be there than, than here with your, your brothers and sisters in Christ, singing together, praying together, uh, sitting under the teaching of the Word together. Friends, that, that could be a heart issue. 
Look at verse 5. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the Scripture says He yearns jealously over the Spirit that He has made to dwell in us? What does this mean? It means God is jealous for His people. We do not serve a, a dispassionate God. God is jealous for His people. He expects us to be passionate for Him as well. God is not satisfied with half-hearted obedience. And God is not satisfied with half-hearted obedience. Devotion. And he's not indifferent to half-hearted devotion. He's not indifferent when we worship sovereign self over him. When our selfish desires push him further and further down the list of priorities, he's not indifferent about that. And that is the essence of to thine own self be true. It comes from a heart of pride. And pride is the pollution. But praise be to God, number two in your notes, grace is the solution. Grace is the solution. Verse 6 is one of the most hopeful verses in the New Testament. James has been telling us all this pollution that's going on in our heart for five verses and then he gets to verse 6 and says this, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. I want to tell you a story I read this week. It's the, the story of Sam. Right after the, the Civil War, uh, Sam has been freed from slavery. But unlike Many, unlike most, Sam loved his master. His master had always taken very good care of him. They had become friends. And so Sam stayed on to help the at the farm, even after he had been freed. And he stayed on to help when, his, uh, when Tom became ill. He stayed until Tom died. He had never known anything else in his life. This is his whole life. This is all he had ever known. And he didn't really know or really didn't understand how to take care of himself. Tom had always done that for him. And one of Tom's children came back and he found Sam living in poverty, just utter poverty. And he said, Sam, don't you know that my father left you some money? 
And so he took Sam and they went to the bank and they learned that Tom had left Sam $5,000. And in those days, $5,000 was a lot of money. Well more than enough to take care of him for the rest of his life. But still in, in Sam's grief and, and just in the way that he had, had been brought up, he just really never could grasp this. All he knew is that he was hungry. And so he asked for enough for a sack of meal so that he could eat. That was about 50 cents. And Sam never came back to the bank again. $4,999.50 sat in the bank as Sam went hungry. Church, we are often like Sam when it comes to God's grace. When it comes to the God's grace that we have at our disposal. We live like we're starving. But He gives more grace. God's grace is greater than our selfish desires. And grace is not something that is earned. It's not something that can be stored up for a rainy day. It's not something the church or the elders hand out as needed. Grace is a person. The person of Jesus Christ. And that's what Jesus meant when He was on the cross bearing the punishment for our sins and he cried out, it is finished. It is finished. All the grace that you need is at your disposal. And so wherever you are this morning in your life, wherever you come in here, whatever you came in here with, whatever you, whatever, wherever you have fallen short, Whatever sin keeps pulling you back. The message this morning is He gives more grace. Your sin will never exhaust His grace. But James wants us to understand that it is possible to run away from God's grace. Grace and pride are like oil and water. They just, they don't mix. And so the second part of verse 6, James quotes here from Proverbs 3, 34, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And what James is saying here is we can receive grace or we can be proud. That's our choice. And one of those choices is terrifying. Because James goes on to say, God opposes the proud. Those who say, you know, I've, I've got this. 
I don't have time for old superstitions, for outdated thinking. I'm going to determine what I believe. I'm going to determine what is true. And when this is our thinking, we reject grace and we reject God. And we cling to pride. And what is clear in these verses is that God becomes our adversary. And that's a terrifying thought. Don't leave here this morning with God as your adversary. He goes on in verse 7. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Submit yourselves to God. And resist the devil. And we live in a kind of an anti-supernatural world. Uh, we live in a world that's pretty much, if I can't see it, touch it, you know, I, I, I don't believe it. But what's funny about that to me is when you look around at our entertainment, the things that we watch, like go to Disney and find some, Disney Plus and find some things that aren't about something supernatural, right? I mean, Marvel and, you know, Star Wars and pretty much any Disney movie have some element of supernatural to them. Yet in the rest of our lives, we are, I have to see it to believe it. We are, I have to see it to believe it. Kind of, you know, people. And this has creeped into the church a little bit as well because we just don't talk about Satan. We don't talk about the devil. We don't talk about spiritual warfare that is against us, even though it is all throughout the New Testament, practically on every page of the New Testament. We have a real enemy who has real helpers, real minions that are doing his bidding. And James wants us to remember this. And tells us, flee. Or tells us, resist. Say no. We have this promise. If we fight sin, if we say no, He will flee. He will run away. And we grow in grace. And He goes on to say, draw near to God and He will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. You may be here this morning feeling like God is far away. But friends, that is not the problem. The problem is not that God is far away. The problem is, is that we don't draw near to God. You know, grace is what separates Christianity from every other world religion. I don't know how much 
you've studied about other world religions, but every other major world religion is you trying to get to God. Through your works, through your own effort, through doing more good than bad, and in the end, it's a guessing game whether you've done enough or not. That's why the gospel is good news. Because that's not what Christianity says. Grace means God gave the gift of salvation through His Son, Jesus. Instead of us trying to get to Him, He came to us. He humbled Himself and came to us. And then verse 10. What does that lead to? Humble yourselves before the Lord and He will exalt you. Those who humble themselves realize Their greatest need is not being true to self. It's actually the opposite. As Jesus said, it's denying self and following Him. It's putting self away and following Him. Jesus didn't come to make us some kind of better version of ourselves. He didn't come to help us become more righteous. He is our righteousness. He is our righteousness. And so this morning, as we close, I want us to consider this. I want you to consider, ask yourself this question. Who is Jesus to me, really? Who is Jesus to me, really? I may say I don't believe this motto, to thine own self be true, but is that the way that I live? Would the people around me say that that's the way that I live? Do I really live like Jesus is Lord of my life? Or is He just somebody that I can get some good advice from to look to as a a positive example as I navigate my way through my life? Is He a piece of the puzzle? Or is he everything? Is he everything? He can't just be a piece of the puzzle. He has to be everything. He can't just be where you go when you need to feel better. He can't just be where you go when you 
need to try to be a better parent or a better husband or a better wife or a better employee. Jesus doesn't offer himself as that. He doesn't offer himself as that. He doesn't offer himself as someone you think has some good things to say and is probably a good guy. As a matter of fact, in Matthew 11, he's talking to a group of people and he says, look, if this is you, if this is who you think I am, if you just like me, then it will be better for Sodom and Gomorrah in the end than it will be for you. As one of the great church fathers said, he is either Lord of He is either Lord of all or he's not Lord at all. He is either Lord of all or he is not Lord at all. These are the options that he offers. He doesn't offer anything in the middle. He can't just be your helper. He can't just be your advisor. He can't just be your example. You don't need another example. You need a savior. And the good news this morning is we can humble ourselves. We can bow down in repentance. And we can know that he gives more grace. Let's pray. Father, Lord God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it speaks to us Father, beyond any capacity that, uh, that we as humans can, can understand. And Father, Lord God, we, we repent for the times that we live with to thine own self be true as our motto. when we walk through life thinking how we can get what we want and not worrying about your will, your kingdom. How often is that true in my life? How often is that true and in the way that I respond to circumstances. And Father, we repent. Father, help us to to humble ourselves. Help us to, um, to draw near to you. Help us to examine our hearts and see are we becoming more of a friend of the world are we more comfortable in the world 
than we are with the world, than we are with the things of God. Help us to recognize that in our own lives, in our own hearts, Father. and Convict us of that. And Father, if there are those here this morning who have, have never confessed You as, as Savior and Lord, who reject the things of God and as, as we read, become enemies of God. And, and Father, we just pray this morning that that's not the way that they leave this place this morning. Father, I just, I just pray that you would uh, draw people this morning unto yourself. And Father, uh, let them know and let them understand that no matter what they came in here with, you give more grace. More grace than we could ever imagine. More grace than, than we um, could ever understand. We thank you, Lord. It's in your name we pray. Amen.